All right. Well, today is the second Sunday of Advent, and uh, the theme is peace. Now, you'd think that peace would be a very easy uh, a topic to form a sermon around, but it's actually more difficult than you might think. And I think one of the reasons why it's difficult is because peace is one of those things that almost all of us would say as human beings, whether you're a believer or not a believer, uh, whether whatever country you're from, peace is something we would say we would all want to have, especially kind of on the international scale. But we'd also like to have peace in our relationships, peace in our families. But I think all of us, as we look at our lives, we look at the world around us, we find that as much as we say we want to have peace, we find it, as a species, very difficult to, to find and to maintain. For example, I was looking at this article, is by the Society of International Law in London. Now, I don't really know what their qualifications are, but uh, this is what they stated. In the last 4,000 years, there have only been... 268 years of peace in spite of agreed-upon peace treaties. Now, you have to understand, too, in the last 4,000 years, there isn't a whole lot of history from around the world. We're talking about pretty much just the history of the nations that, that border the Mediterranean. Uh, we don't have a lot of history from, from parts of Asia, parts of Africa, and so and North America, South America. So in the last 4,000 years, as far as we know, there's only been 268 years of peace, and there's probably been less. And during that time, over 14,000 wars have taken place. And again, that we know of, because really only the, vast, the minority, a tiny minority of events that take place within history have been recorded. So this is a low estimate. During that time, 8,000 peace treaties have been broken. In the last three centuries in Europe, and this is easier to, 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 to document, there have been 286 wars on the continent of Europe in the last 300 years. And we're in another one now. So there's been 287 at least since this came out. And if you pay attention to what's going on in the world right now, it's difficult to have any hope. And we talked about last week what hope is. Hope is expectation. It's difficult to have a real expectation for peace because it seems like we get into a place of peace and then someone comes along who has power and has enough authority to disrupt it, and they do. And even Jesus said as much. Jesus said this about war and peace. He said, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of war, but see to it you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. There's just another massive earthquake in Indonesia, for example. And all of these are the beginning of birth pains. You know, I find it interesting that that title, Prince of Peace, we often emphasize the title of Prince of Peace during this time of year. Did you know the title Prince of Peace is only found once in the Bible? Once. Did you know it's not found in the New Testament at all? Does that surprise you? The only place it's found in the Bible is in a passage that, uh, that we actually sang today out of Isaiah. It says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. 
The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, these, this title list is actually pretty interesting because there's, there's things that are said in this title list which indicate to us that the expectation from the Old Testament into the New Testament was that the Messiah was going to be much more than just a prophet. The Messiah is more than just a good man. I mean, look at the titles he's given. Wonderful Counselor. I suppose that could fit to a prophet or a good person. Mighty God. The expectation from the Old Testament is that the Messiah was going to be God among us. Everlasting Father, the very character and nature of God among us, and then Prince of Peace. And Jesus himself sent a mixed message when it came to the idea of peace. I think one of the things that we sometimes struggle with as Christians is we, we have this ideal in our mind of how things should look, and oftentimes that's influenced by the world. But Jesus, right to our face in the scripture, said this about being a person bringing peace. He said, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, a passage like this is really right in our face because there is no real context around it to soften the meaning, except we do know this from extended passages and teachings of Jesus. He's not talking about here of causing wars in the sense we think of war. He's not saying that he wants us to go out and kill people in his name, though throughout the centuries, people have interpreted it as such and have acted on it as such. He's not saying that he wants us to hate our parents or our children or our family. What he is saying is that his life, his teachings, his death, and most profoundly his resurrection forces everybody to consider this life and to make a decision about this life. And we're going to get into this later, but that decision you make regarding this life is often a decision which divides people. Because either you're with him or you're not. Either you believe or you don't. And if you believe and you follow him with the intention of a disciple, this is going to cause division among people that do not believe. That's what he's saying here. But it's important to understand that Jesus understands that following him is going to bring tension sometimes into the world. And some of you live that. Some of you, you're the only believer in your family. And you know the tension that that can bring. Now, I think that as particularly as, Christ, as Christians and around Christmas time, we love to celebrate the idea of Jesus being the Prince of Peace. And we see the peaceful images around it. But again, I think sometimes we're not really being honest with what Jesus said about himself. We have this idealized version of it. Because if we were to look at the world, if you look at the, how the world has been since Christ's ministry, you'd be hard-pressed to say that we've seen an increase in world peace. In fact, as I've already said, and you know this because it gets thrown in our face as Christians all the time, there have been many wars carried out in the name of Jesus, in the name of religion. 
And it's not just the Crusades. Every nation that goes to war says God is with them. Every nation, however they understand God. And in World War II, for example, Germany said God was with them. U.S., British, French said God was with them. We like to kind of delude ourselves when it comes to the idea of Jesus and peace. And the problem with this is that by not really understanding what Jesus means to be the Prince of Peace, by not really understanding what the idea of peace is because it comes from Christ, we give the world this message that they look at that message and they say, you guys are idiots or you're irrelevant. I was watching a TV show online not too long ago. It's one of these talk shows that you have people from a wide variety of different points of view, comedians, politicians, scientists, whatever. Most of them very, very secular, very few of them believers. And they were, and they were talking about the war in Ukraine. And one of the things about the war in Ukraine, which they were mocking, was that the Orthodox Church has, is even fighting each other over this. You have the Russian Orthodox Church, and you have the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which is actually a fairly new uh, creation over the last decade or so. And, you know, both the church is even saying, the Russian Orthodox Church is saying, this war is justified. The Ukrainian Orthodox Church is saying, our defense and our war back is justified. And the people in the, on this panel said, you know, where's the Prince of Peace? And they all just kind of laughed it off. Well, you know, Christians got that one wrong. Ha, 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 ha. And that ended any discussion of any depth whatsoever as to what it means to really have peace in Christ. Because the world sees this. And they go, this is, just, this is lunacy. Why even talk about it? And it makes them angry, to be honest with you. They look at us and go, you guys are either deluded or insane. And I understand that it makes them angry, because I've gotten angry over this at times. I've shared with you this story before, so if you've heard this before, forgive me. I've only lived one life, and there's only so many stories that I can uh, have in that one life. But... Uh, one time, Cindy and I, we were in, as you know, many of you know, we were Peace Corps volunteers in Lesotho, which is in Southern Africa in the early 90s. And when we were coming back to the U.S., we had been given enough money by our government uh, to fly back that we could cash in the ticket for money and get a cheaper ticket and have enough money left over to go and do some uh, holiday. So we went to New Zealand. And uh, we had some friends in New Zealand. We went to go visit them and, and just kind of explore New Zealand. And if you've never been in New Zealand, New Zealand is every bit as beautiful as you see on the Lord of the Rings. You know, the, those movies were filmed there, and they didn't have to add anything. It is the most spectacularly beautiful country I've ever been in. It's, it's incredible, and it's small, so it's easy to get around. It's lots of coastline, very green. And we had come from this uh, country in Lesotho, which was undergoing a terrible drought. It was a beautiful country in itself, very mountainous, but it was the drought, really. It was dry. There's a lot of erosion, and the sheep, there's a, the, the people kind of found their wealth in the sheep and their cattle, and the sheep were brown and skinny, and even their bah seemed kind of hopeless, you know? They just kind of look at you. And meanwhile, New Zealand, New Zealand is all kinds of sheep, but they're like these perfect little cotton balls on these emerald green hills, and it's very idealistic. Idyllic, I should say, not idealistic, idyllic. So we were there, and we went to... And Cindy and I were just kind of going, wow, this is like paradise. And we went to church with our friends. And the pastor, 
it was right after Christmas time, so that's summertime in New Zealand, and it was right after Christmas, and the pastor of the church we were at did a sermon on uh, what took place after Christ's birth, which was the whole story of Herod. He focused on the story of Herod uh, killing the baby boys that were two years and younger in Bethlehem in order to try and wipe out the Messiah. So he tells this story from the scripture, and then at the end of the story, he says this, of course, none of that actually happened. Because after all, who could be that horrible? No one would ever really do something like that. And then he just went on to his sermon. And I have no idea a single word of what his sermon was after that. Because my mind was blown. I mean, there's times, right, you just kind of, your mind just kind of goes, and you don't know what to do. I was like, do I stand up and leave? Do I stand up and say, What? Do I, stand, do I just sit here? And of course, being the person that doesn't like conflict, I sat there. But I stewed the whole time, and I have no idea what the guy said after that, except that he continued down this crazy road of no one would ever have done anything like that. But, you know, sometimes people are mean to each other. And I had just come out, we had just come out of this time of being in Africa, southern Africa, during the time where apartheid had just ended. But it was rough still. And not only that, there was a time when I counted up all the conflicts just going on in the continent of Africa while we were there. And there was a time when there was 23 different conflicts going on in the news. Civil wars, tribal wars, civil unrest. It was right at the beginning point. Some of you remember in the mid-90s, early 90s, mid-90s, that Rwanda was beginning to get nasty. And it would end up leading to a genocide between the Hutus and the Tutsis. Do any of you remember this? where the Hutus and the, just went after the Tutsi tribe, and there were images of rivers literally being dammed with the bodies of people that had been killed and thrown into the rivers. The story of a Hutu priest who was a priest to primarily a group of Tutsis, and he invited them to come to church so they could have sanctuary from the violence that was going on. And then he locked them into the church and he burned it to the ground. So when this guy said... Who would be that horrible? Not only did these local things go through my head, but then there's, you know, names that go through your head. Stalin goes through your head. Nero goes through your head. Caligula goes through your head. The dude with the funny mustache goes through your head. The genocide that took place in North America went through my head. The question isn't who would be that horrible. The question is, why aren't we all that horrible? Because there's a lot of horribleness goes on in the world. And to be honest with you, it made me angry. And it, just, it didn't make me angry. It took me a while to digest why it made me angry. It actually took me a couple of years. This is one of those stories that you've probably heard before because there are stories that kind of stick with you and they shaped you. And I was angry. Just one, you know, just kind of blithely dis discarding a part of Scripture. But the other part that kind of made me angry was just the ignorance of it. How can you be so dumb? How can you stand up and say something so stupid? And then expect the world and the unsaved and those whom you're trying to share the gospel with to take you seriously. It's like you're walking around, you're all naive. You believe that, the, that there are unicorns in the forest here and that the sun always shines in Dusseldorf. It's like, come on! If you're going to be that dumb, how do you expect people to take you seriously? But I think the thing that really got to me 
was that when we refuse to face the truth of the world around us, then the point of Jesus Christ gets lost. Because the truth is the world around us is an ugly place. The cross is an ugly thing. It's interesting when you look at a lot of medieval art. Here's an example of a medieval painting of Christ. It's ugly. It's meant for you to look at and realize that sin is an ugly thing. And this is common. You look at older medieval paintings of Jesus. Jesus is sometimes distorted. His body has a funny contortion to it. Sometimes he's, he's so thin in the pictures, his ribs are shown. It's like he's emaciated, almost skeleton on the cross. This one, he's kind of this weird, ghastly green. And the point of it is, is that sin is ugly. And if we want to pretend that sin's not there, then the cross becomes pointless. And I don't mind that people wear the cross as a, a piece of jewelry. I have, sometimes I'll wear a cross as a piece of jewelry. But we have to be aware that the cross wasn't a golden, pretty piece of jewelry. The cross was an instrument of humiliation, torture, and death. Jesus didn't die with a loincloth on it. He was naked, beaten, humiliated, spat upon, nails driven into his hands, put up between two thieves, and finally, a spear driven into his heart. It's ugly. And it's a reason for it being ugly. Because sin is ugly. And this is the peace. When Jesus talks about peace, what he's talking about is that that ugliness of sin actually has a solution. It's not, he's not talking about governments getting along. He's not talking about humanity in general all holding hands and singing kumbaya regardless of faiths, regardless of traditions, regardless of culture, regardless of tribes, which is what people think. He says, no, the peace I'm going to give you is different. But we have to understand that this world needed this because the world is ugly. And sin, in specifics, is ugly. So it's important for us to understand as we go into the world and as we're Christians in this world, when they look at us and go, where is your Prince of Peace? Where is this ideal that you guys talk about that everything's great? It's important for us to understand what Jesus really said about peace. And so what does he say about peace? Well, first of all, Jesus says that the peace he gives isn't the same thing that the world defines as peace. He said this in John 16, I've told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He's not saying that this world is going to become a peaceful place. But within this troubled place, he is going to give us the opportunity and the tools to overcome the hopelessness that accompanies the sin of this world. He talks about it again, John 14, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. Then he defines my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. 
And then the passage we've already looked at. Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. One of the things the Antichrist, we're told in the scripture, will come. He will come claiming to bring world peace. And yet, it will be such a hypocritical lie, but we'll get sucked into it. Because as human beings, we have a tendency to get sucked into the stupid. Jesus' promise of peace has very little to do with world peace. Now, there have been times that peace has been brokered and Christ got the glory for that, but not very many. Because the peace of Christ is a, is a peace which the world doesn't understand or appreciate. It's a peace which comes when we're forgiven and we are able to forgive others who have wronged us so that that turmoil of our soul can finally be healed. That comes from the peace of Christ. Knowing you've been forgiven by God and being able to forgive others around you who have wronged you. So you don't sit up with that acid in your belly at night feeling wronged and hurt by everyone around you. And if you are in that place, then you need to consider the forgiveness you need to extend to people around you. You say, what if they don't deserve it? Who does? What if they didn't ask? Forgive them anyway. Because it's only hurting you. The peace of Christ comes from being free from the guilt and the shame of past resentments and hurts. We've all done things that we're not proud of. Thought things for sure that we're not proud of. Some of you might say, you could go through my life, you could go through my online profile, I'm squeaky clean. Great. What if we go into your head? What if we go into everything you've ever thought just over the last week? Would you want that? There's guilt and there's shame that we can hand over to Christ and be forgiven of and not be in this place of saying, I'm just a fraud and a hypocrite. Because Christ acknowledges the fact that we are sinful and we are people in need of a Savior and a Christian that understands that finds peace because they can go to him and seek that forgiveness. It's a peace which is able to be an oasis of calm within the storms of life. Jesus never says the storms, that, that thing, build your house upon the rock instead of the sand. He never says, and the person that built the house upon the rock, the storms ceased. No, the point of the story is the storms were there for everybody. It's just by building upon the rock of Christ, we are able to weather that storm and to be strong through it. The storm doesn't go away. It's there. It's a peace which comes from the assurance of an eternal future secured in Christ. So much of the world is, is they're so fearfully hanging on to everything they can. One of the, one of the, the things you'll sometimes hear, and I'm, I'm for you know, taking care of the earth, as long as it's the only planet we've got, right? We need to take care of it until Christ comes back for sure, before all things are made new. But one of the rhetoric you sometimes hear about environmental thing is like, is, uh, you know, We've got to hang on to this because there is no future. This is it. What we have, this is it. And there's a fear that accompanies it. This is all we've got. It's like the people that just invest their entire life in building up their bank account because they don't believe there's anything for them beyond. This is it. And so things become out of whack. They become skewed because there's no belief in an eternity. 
They're focused in on everything that's right in front of them, and they live in fear. We don't have to be in that place of fear because there's an eternity that we look forward to. It's not to say we shouldn't be a good steward. I think we have not been good stewards because of sin of this planet. But this isn't it. It's also a peace that comes from being part of the family of Christ. As much as conflict as there is within the church, and there is conflict within the churches, there's also very often a beautiful unity. And when you know that you have people you can rely on, who are brothers and sisters on a very deep, on a deeper level than biology, it can be a sign of peace. It's a peace which understands we're saved by grace, not by our performance. A peace that knows should we fail and fall into sin, God will be faithful and forgive us of all we confess. This is the peace of Jesus Christ. It's not the UN. It's you and him. And don't get me wrong, I would love to live in a world where human beings held each other in such high regard as beings created in the image of God. I would love that we abhorred violence toward one another the same way that if you bring up the topic of cannibalism or incest, most people go, Ugh. but when we bring up the idea that we kill each other all the time, we go, meh. Why is that? And that's the world we live in. And it's not going to change until Christ returns. And even when he returns and sets things right, it's going to be painful. Read the Bible. But we need to understand what the peace of Christ is really about because the world will look at our lives, and sometimes we look at our lives and we go, is this really real? If being a Christian, a real Christian, if God is real, that means nothing goes wrong in your life. There is no sickness. There is no death. There is no financial hardship. There is no child that goes off in a rebellion. There is none of this. Then what am I living? And it's important for us to understand because people need to understand. The world needs to understand. And we've already talked about this. Christ brings conflict into worldly systems. He even says it himself. He brings conflict into worldly systems of government and of family, of race, of tribes, because his life requires a personal response from all who hear his message. And because people will respond to his life in different ways, it will bring about conflict. That's what he's talking about when he says he'll turn father against son and mother against daughter-in-law because of the conflict of belief. And some of you understand this very personally. You've lived it, and you continue to live it. Because when we follow Christ, he becomes the priority in our life. And as the priority of life, all that we do, all that we say, how we act, how we live our lives, everything goes through his will. And this brings conflict. Now, there are some guiding lights for us to follow. There's the Bible. There's the Holy Spirit, and there's the church. But I think we're all painfully aware of that the weak link in that unity of guide and that trinity of guidance is the church. Because historically, the church has always had within it the selfish and the power-hungry, the sinful streak, because we are sinful, fallen creatures. The Holy Spirit, there's no sin in the Holy Spirit. The Bible describes sin, but there's nothing sinful about the Bible. The church... Yeah. 
You know, you've heard the whole cliche, if you're looking for the perfect church, it'll be ruined as soon as you join it. Because none of us are perfect. But God has been faithful throughout the centuries of keeping his word known. Because there have been times that the selfishness of the church and the power hunger in the church has led to the message of Christ being pushed down. Pushed down because the people in charge in the church didn't really want other folks to know what Jesus was really saying about them as leaders in the church. So they suppressed it. They covered it up. They kept it in a language that no one knew for a while. They put traditions over it. But God brings about reformations and changes, and he keeps bringing his word back up. And right now, don't, don't, you th- don't think that we now live in some utopian time of history where the cr- message of Christ is not being distorted. It's being distorted all the time. Mormonism, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's what they're called. It's a terrible distortion of Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses, the witnesses of Jehovah. No, they're not. But even within Christian circles, this health and wealth gospel is garbage. Complete and utter garbage. It's a heresy. And it's widespread among those who would, in all other uh, expressions, seem to be brothers and sisters. And I'm not saying they're not. I'm just saying, if you follow that belief, you're choosing to follow a heresy. It's still around. But God keeps his word known. And this is one of the miracles. It's, I think, one of the proofs that we worship the living God because it's never been completely lost. There's always been not just a remnant, but a strong remnant of those who are faithful, who rebuild and rebuild. And through all of this, there's always been those who understand that the peace of God, which transcends understanding, is going to be about the soul. Because that peace of God which transcends understanding isn't going to make the world an easy place for anybody. We probably live the most easy lives of all people on this planet. People who are in the Western world. We live the easiest lives of people on the planet. And if you don't think that's true, do some traveling in places other than Europe and the United States. And you'll see it's true. But we have a hope, and Christians throughout the world have a hope which the world and its sin and its corruption cannot touch. And that's really the definition of joy, having a hope which cannot be touched by corruption and sin. And in this hope, that storehouse of our soul, our hope is in heaven. Our hope is in the living God that dwells with us. Our hope is in what we find in our fellowship with one another in Christ. And this is why we're important to each other. The church isn't just about a place to come and be taught, to have a meal after church now and then, and get busy with all the other stuffs around volunteering in the church. The church is about coming together and encouraging one another. And so with that said, may we rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it. Rejoice! Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.
Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your church. We thank you that you have kept these things. And even when they go off the beam, especially the church, you always have been a God of restoration. And Father, we pray that as we go into the season where we do celebrate you as the Prince of Peace, and in a very real way you are, but not in a worldly way. May we be prepared to give the answers to those who would cynically say, where is your Prince of Peace now? May we have the courage and the insight given to you by your Holy Spirit and by your word to speak to their souls. And Father, as we also go into this time of year, as we walk through this time of year, of Advent, may we also be mindful of how we are peacemakers. Not just peacekeepers, but making peace where there is no peace. And maybe be mindful of the way the only, reason, the only way we do that is to share who you are. To bring peace to the tormented human souls that in turn torment one another. And Father, we do pray that there would be peace in Europe, that there would be peace in this conflict going on. But more than that, Lord, we pray that you would transform hearts and minds. What an amazing thing it would be see, to see, Lord, <laughs> the people who are leading this conflict and bringing death and destruction to repent, to give their lives to you, and see a radical reversal in what's happening around us. I think, Lord, that we're almost afraid to pray that because it just seems like it'd be so impossible to come true. But you can. So we pray for those who are the antagonists in this war. Not just for Putin, but for others as well. Those who are profiting off of war. Those who are trying to manipulate and have power and control. Those who are enjoying the death and the destruction. God, break them and bring peace. Not just a piece of a contract signed, but of true repentance and of a hope found in you. That's a big prayer, Lord. And we understand that your will is to be done, and you warned us there's going to be wars and rumors of war, but it would be pretty spectacular to see. And so, Father, why not? We ask for it. But Lord, we also pray for those here whose lives are feeling very unpeaceful because of things that have gone on around them. Deep loss. Loss of loved ones over this last year or two years or however long. The consequences of that in their lives, the pain of it. Lord, the losses in finances as inflation grows and Economies shrink, people freaking out, panicking about that, feeling like so much that they've, time and effort they put into things is just slipping away. 
Lord, conflict that is in people's families, people who are right here today, my life. Lord, that you would reign as the Prince of Peace, not just by removing conflict, but helping us to understand the perspective you've given us in your eternity, learning to forgive, seeking reconciliation, not by our own strength, but in Jesus' name. Lord, we pray for families. We pray for the married couples who are struggling to stay together, who are questioning whether they even want to, not just in the world around us, in our church. Lord, we pray for the kids and parents, the rebellion, the things that kids are being taught, which goes against their parents' values, and, and yet their kids are having this poured into their ears by people they respect. And parents are wondering, what do I do? They don't listen to me. May you bring the peace into the parents' hearts and transform their hearts into children's hearts to see their commonality in you and find one another again. And Lord, we pray for our church. IBCD is a remarkable place, and you know it, but you know also there's a lot of things that need your peace to come into it. And we pray that your peace would reign supreme. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.